0: Open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to do, uh, start the actual uh, text of Nehemiah this morning. We're going to read the first three verses Is about how far we're going to get. Thank you. If you've noticed uh, in the handout, I typically try to put down what the next text is going to be so that you can uh, follow along if you'd like to. And I did some introduction to this last week, so I hopefully we won't have to do too much. We'll do a little bit of review if, we, uh, if necessary here, just to get us, uh, get us on the right page. But let's just jump in, because the very first uh, line uh, sets the stage for us, and we want to just begin there. You can follow along in the handle if you'd like to, but he begins off the letter here by saying, uh, these are the words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. And I gave you a lot of background last week, a lot of historical background, uh, a lot of things to sort of fill in the gaps to help us see where we're at, what the what the time frame is, uh, what the what the section of history that we're sitting in and as the exiles are coming back, remember Nehemiah is in the 3rd a group mentioned that comes back out of the exile coming uh, into Jerusalem the first one came with a man named Zerubbabel and they began to rebuild the temple they accomplished that after about 30 years the second wave came with a man named Ezra and uh, Ezra as you remember was a man who sought to know the word of God his laws and to follow them and to teach them to those people around him And shortly after Ezra came, Nehemiah comes on the scene, and these are the words of Nehemiah as he recorded them. Just a real quick review. Now, uh, if you weren't here last week, it's not going to be review. It's going to be new information, but if you were here, this is going to be a quick review just to highlight. I'm hoping, I'm expecting uh, that these are kind of the places, the areas that we're going to apply the text of Nehemiah. Certainly, we can't help but apply them historically because it's a historical document written that contains a real history about people, and so we're going to find Find historical truths and historical things in this letter. We also want to know that when we read the word of God, that there's spiritual application for us. There's things that we're gonna read about that were true back then, that we're gonna say, how do we pull that into our world today? And what does it have to say to you and I about our lives? We're gonna start with some of that even just this morning. We're gonna really flesh it out and come and dig into it next week because I didn't feel we could get all of this into one week. Uh, And then you see that I had the final thing there because I think Nehemiah happens to be one of the most uh, excellent, exemplary, one of the most incredible examples of a godly leader that we can find uh, in in all of Scripture. Uh, There are other examples, of course, out there you can find, uh, not just in Scripture, but certainly uh, Nehemiah is, he's going to demonstrate some things to us, I believe, and again, we're going to see one right away this morning. He's going to demonstrate some things to us that I believe uh, ought to be instructions for us if we presume to lead. And I mean lead in a pretty, very broad sense, by the way. Uh, it could be in church leadership, no question. It could be in business leadership. Uh, I would say there's a, a very great need for godly leaders to be in our business world. Uh, think, of, think of what a mess we already are in economically speaking, uh, corporately wise speaking, and how much worse it would be if we wouldn't have any godly leaders in those uh, sectors in those places. We absolutely need that. Uh, I mean it even just to, in a non-direct way where uh, if you're, you're, a, you're a husband, you're a father, then you're a leader in your home. But it goes even beyond that. Now, you know, I don't, maybe you're going to get touchy about this, but the reality is for many of us in our situations, this is how our homes are structured and, and, and the men are, are maybe out working or they're doing something and, and our wives are at home with our, with our children. You know, my wife is a leader for my children every day of the week. In many ways, she is a more con- has more contact and leadership with my children than I do sometimes just by, by what she's doing. She's, she's schooling them. She's raising them. She's giving them her chores so some of these things, and I want to be careful how I say that. I don't, I, I don't mean to intend that, that she's a leader in our home. She's not. I just preached a message on that. I think you know how I feel about that. But without a doubt, a leader is someone that has people following them, right? Actually, I think you could, you could define a leader this way. A leader is someone who has influence over other people. If, they're influencing, if you're influencing somebody, then you are a leader in that capacity, And that is a lot of you sitting in this room this morning in some form, fashion, shape, or way. Therefore, if we're going to learn from Nehemiah what some godly leadership things look like, I think it's worth it for us to pay attention to those things. Now, the second thing, just as a way of, of, uh, of review, I covered this stuff last week in a little more depth, but I also want to look at some different levels of application, that as we go through the book of Nehemiah, there's a lot of things here that have to do with them as a nation, and so we can pull things out and say, this is what a, the identity of a godly nation should look like. There's things that, if you think back for them in their, in their context and their situation, they not only were the nation of Israel, however, they were also God's people. And today, we're going to pull some of those things in and say, what does that mean for the church? As God's, uh, the, the called out ones, right? The ecclesia, the called out ones. What does that mean for God's church? What does the identity of a godly church look like? And of course, you can break that down into smaller levels even. That's the, sort of the macro view of things, national and uh, church-wide, but in a, on a more micro level, you can say, what about our families? There's a lot of things as we work through that we're going to say, we can apply this to our families. We have a family. We, we, we make up a unit that, that I believe God is a, is a huge fan of, husband and wife and children, and what does he want out of our marriages? Malachi answered that. Anybody know what he answered? What does God want out of our marriages? Nobody knows? We should know this. Thank you, someone knows Godly offspring by the way, this is why our husbands and wives are the pictures of Jesus in the church because what, is, what, is, what, what does God want out of Jesus and the church working together? He wants godly offspring, He wants disciples of Jesus Christ, but that 's why on a micro level our families represent that so So what can we learn about the identity of a godly family from this book, and then, of course I said this last week, I went back up the scale backwards, but we can't expect to have godly families and godly churches and godly nations if we don't have godly individuals, right? What is the identity of godly people? And we're going to find a lot of things in this text that we're going to try to apply things on those levels. Well, Nehemiah doesn't waste a lot of time jumping in. He has that introductory phrase, and I don't want to waste any more time either jumping in because he says that he was in the, uh, the citadel or the, uh, yeah, the citadel, the, the, the castle or the, the, the uh the, the big, uh, uh is but the best word I, I can think of at this point, because the other word's skipping out of my mind. It's called Susa. It was the winter palace. That's what I was trying to think of. It's the winter palace of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And he's there. Now, at this point in the story... We don't actually know why he's there. We don't know for sure why he's there. He's going to tell us here a little bit later why he's there because he's the king's cupbearer. But we wouldn't know that as we're reading the story at the start. But he's there and some men from Judah come, including this man named Hanani that he calls a brother. And there's some debate about whether he was a, a blood brother or just they call him a brother because he was a brother in the faith. And honestly, I don't know that we know definitively why, but there's no evidence that we, should, that we have to think that he's not actually a blood brother of Nehemiah. Uh, he does call them the same name, but my brother Han and I, uh, in, in uh, chapter 7 coming up, we're going to get there. But he asks them this question. That's really what I want to get to because this is really the next major point I want to make. When he sees these people that have come from Judah, from, the, from, from an area that's far away from him in that moment, he asks them this question. He says, oh, he's writing this down. He says, I'm inquiring what is the, uh, what's the, uh, the status of these Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. There's a twofold concern there for him. He says, I wanna know what, what's, what's, well, what's the status of the people that are there, and what's the status of Jerusalem itself? Very interesting question, by the way. You and I might say, well, what does he care about Jerusalem? You might even say, I mean, I think human, humanly speaking, you might even say, why does he even care about those people? They live miles and miles away, and it's not like today where people are somewhat connected when they live miles and miles away, where they can pull up Skype, or they can pull up, you know, uh, some kind of uh, chat, or they can, they can message each other, they can, they can do something to, to find out, hey, how are things going, you know, in Florida? How are things going in China? For all practical purposes, they were probably about as far away as China is to most of us. And yet, he says, how are people doing there? And how's the city doing? By the way, he is demonstrating What I would say is a biblical mindset, a biblical attitude. Let me explain it this way. In Psalm 122, let me read these words for you. Psalm 122 says this. You're going to see Nehemiah in this right away. Psalm 122, verse verse 6. He says, uh, this is what the psalmist says. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. You see, something that, that Nehemiah, he thought differently about Jerusalem. He didn't say it's just a city; it's just some place that exists somewhere. He thought, this is the place that God said I will put my presence, and in fact, where God did put His presence until it was destroyed, or he withdrew it, it, and they destroyed the temple when they took them into exile. He said, I must care about this place, just like the psalmist said, because in doing so, I'm also caring for the people that it represents. Does that make sense? He connected that. He said, I'm concerned about the place, because the place is indirectly also showing my concern for the people that it represents. And ultimately, For the God who said, that's where I'm going to put my presence. It's a little bit, by the way, of the mindset that Aaron was trying to get us to see this morning. You see... Nehemiah is in some other country under some other rule doing some other king's bidding and having some other set of rules he lives by and yet he continues to say my heart is with my God whose presence is down there in that place we call Jerusalem and my heart is burdened for that place and for those people. I need to find out how they're doing. Now, let me just uh, insert this As we're going through the narrative, let me just pull out for a little bit and insert this. uh, My first, uh, I don't know if I'm going to call them tips or my first, uh, uh, my, my first truth about a godly leader. But I want you to notice something. Nehemiah is showing concern for people who really, he could say, I really don't care about. I really have no need to be concerned about. They're over there. They're doing their thing. I don't even know them. I, it's not my concern. I got, I mean, I'm, can you imagine I'm under this tremendous pressure? I'm under tremendous fear every day. He's the cupbearer to the king. What does the cupbearer to the king do? Somebody, somebody help me out. What does the cupbearer to the king do? Yeah, he's the guy that when they bring food into the king, they say, "I, we don't want to make sure, we want to make sure the king's not going to die by being poisoned by somebody who doesn't like him. So, hey, you, a buddy over there, you eat this stuff first. See what happens. If you're okay, then we'll give it to the king. How many of you would like to be in a position like that? I'm sort of the crash test dummy for the king, right? Like, if this doesn't hurt me, then it'll be all right for him too. You think he lives with any kind of fear or any kind of apprehension on a daily basis? If you read through the history of kings in the world and in Jerusalem and all over the place, you know there's always people looking to kill the king, right? There's always people looking for some way to to sneak in and say, I'm going to take this guy out. Instead, Nehemiah demonstrates a genuine concern, and I put it this way, for those under him. Now, this can be people who are, if you're in a leadership some way, for those that are, like, literally in some kind of, uh, position underneath you, like, like you're in charge of them. They're, they're the people that you're giving instructions to or that you're responsible for or whatever it may be. But it could also just be broadly defined as people that you think are, uh, if I could use this human phrase, you think are beneath you. Like I'm at this level because I've achieved this or I have this status or I'm here or I'm this important and these people are beneath me. These were the exiles. You know where the exiles that were left behind were? They were the nobodies. Because they didn't matter, right? Like, think of it this way. If you're an opposing king and you come and you decimate a a city and want to get rid of their country and you say, I'm going to take some people back with me, which people would you take with you? The important, powerful people or the nobodies? And which people would you leave back in the city? You leave the nobodies there, right? You take the ones that could actually hurt you, the ones that have influence, the ones that have status, and you either kill them or you take them with you. That's exactly what they did. That's why Daniel left with the first wave. That's what you do with them because you want to scatter them. You want to put them under your thumb. You want to put them where you can see them. When you go and you look at your far-flung kingdom that's miles and miles away and you say, you know the people I can leave there to just kind of take care of things? They're the nobodies, the people that don't matter because they're not going to do anything anyway. Right? They're going to just exist and scratch out their living and they're not going to, nobody's going to pay attention to them. They're, 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 the, they're, the, they're the, the, the bottom. They're the, they're the untouchables if you live in India. Nehemiah shows a genuine concern for those who are far beneath his status that he should have no concern for. And I would tell you this morning that a godly leader, that's exactly what one of the things is that defines who a godly leader is, is that he cares about those that are under him or her. All right. Well, let's get back in the text because he asked the question, how are they doing? And the answer is forthcoming from Hanani. He says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Not a good way to start off the answer, right? When he's concerned about how they're doing, not a great way to start off the answer. The, re- the remnant that's there, they survived, but they are in great trouble. Trouble and shame. And he goes on to say uh, the reason why, or maybe the evidence of the great trouble and shame they're in by the next, uh, finish the sentence here. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Hananiah comes to Nehemiah and Nehemiah says, Hey, how is everything going back in Jerusalem? And Hananiah says, It's not a pretty picture. People are in trouble there. The wall is broken down, the gates are burned. This is not a good situation, Nehemiah. Now, hold on. Before we go any further, I want to make sure that we square some things away. This picture that Hanani's painting for Nehemiah is exactly what God said would happen. Let me demonstrate this to you. Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, God speaks a message through the prophet Isaiah And he says this. Listen to these words. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then he says in verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And then he says in verse 5, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge Now, he's speaking poetically. Is God talking about vineyards here? Is he worried about a vineyard? Is he, is he saying, I had this really nice plot of land, and I planted this vineyard and wanted to get grapes out, it, and they, they, they turned out wild, and no matter how much work I did, they just, they just didn't produce very well? Is that what God's really talking about? Is he? Make sure you're tracking with me. What is he talking about? Who is he talking about? He says right there in the last verse I read. He says, the vineyard I'm talking about is Israel. The people I'm talking about is the men of Judah. And he says, I planted it. I I took care of it. I put a watchtower in it. I made a wine vat for it. I surrounded it. I protected it. I was looking for a good grape harvest, and all I got was wild grapes. And then he says, now you judge between me and my vineyard. But the verse I put up there, look at how, even though he's speaking figuratively, look at how literal things have become. I tell you what I'm going to do, he says. With that vineyard, I'm going to remove its hedge. I'm going to devour it. I'm going to break down its wall, and it will be trampled down. Now, if you prefer to not be spoken to in figurative kind of language, and you prefer to not have sort of this vague, like, I'm not really sure how to apply this or what this means, let me just read you something else to you. This Now I'm going to go back, and it goes all the way back to 1 Kings, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, and God visits him and speaks to him and says i'm going to put my presence here in this temple and in this place in this uh, city of jerusalem listen to what he says in first kings chapter 9 get to the right place here first kings chapter 9 verse 6 but if you turn aside from following me he's talking to solomon if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done this to, thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Can I tell you again? That's pretty plain, right? Can I tell you again? The situation that Hananiah is describing to Nehemiah, that they are in great trouble and shame. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned. We are, this is a bad deal, Nehemiah. This is a bad deal. The situation they find themselves in is exactly what God said would happen. Now, in these verses, I also read to you why it happened, right? And that is very instructive to us. Why God said, I'm going to tear my vineyard up. Why God said, if you don't like indirect language, let me use direct language of Solomon. He said, if you will not obey me, I will, this house that has my presence in it, this beautiful house you just spend all this time and money putting together, I will make it a heap of ruins, I will make your people a byword, a proverb. You understand what that means? A proverb is a thing given as an example. As in, the good person does this, the bad person does this, and this is the result. Which side of that equation, by the way, do you think he was indicating that they were going to be on? Not the good side. I'm sure... I'm sure that if we're at all paying attention, if we're at all making any effort at being astute and honest, that you already know this, but I'm just going to say it as plainly as I can, there's probably this building pit of oof, coming because you're going to know that if we're going to take the text of Nehemiah and pull it into today and t- talking about it, that we can no more escape the reality of the picture we see around us than Nehemiah and the people of Judah could escape the reality of the picture around them. And there are reasons for why that picture looked like it did. Let's spend a few moments. Time is passing on. But let's spend a few moments digging into a few words. I'm going to go back in that specific answer because there's great instruction. There's great teaching. There's great preparation for us to study the book of Nehemiah in some of these words. Hanani says... Those who are left back there, they are in great trouble and shame. Trouble is the Hebrew word ra. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's just R-A, ra. It means bad or evil or to be in distress or to, uh, to be in trouble or to be in misery. It's a word used often in the Old Testament, by the way, very often. But a few places we read of it, I think we can begin to pick a thread out of what God is saying in the Bible. And I want to do that for you this morning. For example, the first, one of the first times, I think maybe the very first time the word appears at all in the, in the, in the Bible is very early on. It's here in Genesis chapter 2. It says that God planted this garden. We know it's the Garden of Eden. He put the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the same word. Same word as what Hannah and I said that the people are in trouble. They're distressed. There's, things are bad. God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in there. And as you know, God said to Adam and Eve, hey, you can have a fruit of all, take of all the fruit of all the trees, but you can't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But as we also know, just a chapter later, we read these words, right? That Satan, in the form of the serpent, came to Adam and Eve and he said, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we see that what God put there in the middle and said you should not have, that our hearts, human hearts, immediately began to want and desire. And, in fact, they gave, they gave in to that temptation. They sinned. It's, we call it the fall and just a few chapters later, we're going to see this word again. This time, God says this. In chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis, says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Friends, I cannot think, uh, at least a very few, I cannot think of very many phrases in the Bible that, I, that, are, that are worse than this phrase. Like, read it. Think of what it's saying. Of all of humanity, God looked at it and said the wickedness of man is great and every intention of the thought of his heart is and look at these words piled up. Every intention of the thought of his heart is only evil continually. Only evil continually, on and on and on and on and on. What began with with a little bite from the tree, right? Now has come The all of humanity we see has given in to evil, to trouble, to misery. And as we continue reading the story, we begin to very quickly see that this evil that is in humanity begins to cause a lot of pain to those people around them, right? To each other. Cain killed Abel. On and on and on the story begins then where there's death, there's destruction, there's hatred, there's strife, there's deception, there's Uh, all kinds of stuff. So much so that when we get to the end of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 50, we're closing out the story of a man named Joseph. And you know what happened to Joseph, right? We could take time to tell the story this morning. I'm not going to because we don't have the time to take. But Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. He went down into Egypt and all this awful stuff all this awful stuff happened. He was in trouble, right? Continually was in trouble. No matter, no matter how God, he began to rise up. Something came along, and, and he, but he was moved into a position where he became uh, the second in charge to Pharaoh himself, and he, they went through this great famine. And you remember the end of, 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 of uh, uh, Joseph's father's life, and when he passed away, then all the brothers came, and they were trembling, and they were uh, worried, and they were asking for forgiveness again because they were worried that now that our dad is gone... Surely now Joseph is going to take all the revenge out on us for all the evil that we put upon him. Right? You Remember this? And in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says these words. Again, you see the thread we're starting to pull out here. Joseph says these words. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We begin to see the thread being pulled out. God knows God is the definition he's of good and right. So anything that's not of him is of evil. And we wanted to be in that position. And, we, and that brought evil down to us. And it, and, it, and it wiped out. It went through all of us. But God demonstrates right away that he's in this business of taking what is meant for evil and making good out of it. Then we come to the people of Israel. I want you to see this scene. They're crossing the Jordan. They're about to enter the promised land. Joshua is their commander now. Moses brought them out of Egypt, but Joshua is their commander now. And in Joshua 5, 9, we read this line right here. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal, which means uh, sounds like the word we used to roll, uh, Gilgal to this day. He said, Today I have rolled away the reproach. Now, I'm, I'm bringing this verse out because the word reproach there is the other word that we read in Nehemiah chapter 1 in Hanani's response. Remember, the people are in trouble, that's evil, and shame. That's the word "kerpaw," and it means reproach or shame or scorn. It is the result, by the way, of sin. And God begins to give us a glimpse of what he is about when he takes uh, evil and turns it into good. He's looking at Joshua and he says, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. I've taken away that scorn. I've taken away that shame. Now, the reason I picked this reference uh, is very important, I think. We're going to test a little bit of Bible knowledge. If you have your Bible open, you might be able to, you might be able to get to this quicker than if you don't. But um, what is he talking about when he says, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you? What's just happened? Anybody know what's just happened? See, I like to keep you on your toes make sure you're still paying attention. Anybody know what just happened in Joshua chapter 5? Hold on. What did you say? No, it's not after Achanston. What did you say? Okay, they crossed the Jordan. So we know in a broad sense, we know in a broad sense they came out of Egypt. They had lots of sin, right? And they wandered in the desert for 40 years. The generation passed off. They're wandering around. They come to the Jordan. They cross the Jordan miraculously. They're staring at Jericho, who's the first city of conquest. So we know overall what the story is, but does anybody know the specific event that happened at Gilgal that, that the Lord is referring to? There's a very specific event. This is, I mean, he's, the Lord says this to Joshua right on the heels of something that, that, that happened. Somebody said it. It's when Joshua said, we're about ready to go into the promised land, and Before we do that, which, just think about this, logically speaking, from a human, like, army commander kind of perspective, not a really smart move. But he said, before we do that, we're going to go through and circumcise every male. Because these are part of the generation that came out, and and they were not doing any circumcisions the whole time, of the 40 years of wandering. So we're going to do the circumcision of every male before we start taking the the, the conquest of the promised land. What is circumcision? What, what, what? What's the deal with circumcision? Why did Why did he say we have to circumcise people? What's What's the What's the point of that? You can keep talking to me. What's that? Okay, so it's it's a physical thing, right? But but you're saying spiritually, it's representing cutting away the flesh of a heart. Okay, I like that. What was the whole point of circumcision? Why did they get? Where did? Why? Why did the first? Why did the first people of God get circumcised? What? What was the reason? What's that? You said a sign of the, set apart, set apart a sign of the covenant. Yeah, it's it's their sign that they're entering into the covenant that God is making with them. It's their part of the agreement. Now just. Just hang on to that thought for just a little bit. We're going to keep moving here because I want to look at some other words that were here because the follow-up of what he says when they're in trouble and shame is he begins, the first thing he points to, the first thing he points to to say, I can tell you, Nehemiah, we're in trouble and there's shame all over the place and the first thing I can tell you about is that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, stop for a moment and think, why did he pick that? Why did he talk about that? Why didn't he say, we're struggling to find food? I don't know if they were or not. I have no idea. Like, we don't, we don't have a king anymore. I don't know why he didn't pick that. Uh, we, like, there's people around us that don't like us. Maybe he could have picked that. Uh, he could have picked, uh, it, it's not fair, like, we're, we're God's people and, 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 and our economy is really suffering. Why, he didn't pick that, right? The first thing he picks to say that we're in trouble and shame is to say, hey, by the way, the wall around Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned by fire, destroyed by fire. For some reason that we have yet to discover that we're going to try to dig into, there's something important about walls and gates, right? There's something about that that he immediately said, this is how I can tell you and assure you that if you were to come to Jerusalem yourself, you would agree with me that we are in great trouble and great shame. For the wall is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. That begs the question, what's the purpose of a wall? Why do we have walls? Why do cities have walls? What's the point of them? If it's so important that the evidence of our trouble and shame is that we have no wall around us, well, it wasn't gone completely. It was just broken down. There were spots where you could walk over because there was a heap of stones right there instead of what used to be a stone wall. What's the, what's the purpose of a wall? Did you, ever, did you ever stop and ask yourself that question, by the way? What's the point or the purpose of having a wall? What's that? Someone says protection. I'm going to, before I put my answers up. Let's let's see. You guys by, by the way may think more answers than I have. It's quite possible. Better answers than I have. That's quite possible too. Protection's a good one. What's that? Separation. Yeah, that's not a word I use, but you're going to see that coming out in my answers. What's that? Did somebody else say something? Security. You know. What's that? Keeping the evil out? Well, let me me start somewhere else. Nobody's mentioned this yet, but I know how we think, so I know that we have had times in our lives where we think this way, actually. I think the first thing about a wall is not so much about keeping things out always, it's sometimes keeping what's in on the inside, right? So you can't get out. Come on. How many times do you guys in your fleshly selves, now, I'm not saying you did it this morning or that whatever, you can point to your sins of your youth, maybe if you want to take an easy way out, but how many times do you say, all these restrictions and rules that I have to follow, and all these things I have to do, and I wish I wouldn't have to do that, it feels so restrictive, it feels like if I could just have my freedom and go where I want to and do what I want to, that would just be so much nicer isn't it true? Why do you put a fence around your backyard when your little kids are in there? We don't have one, but if we would, it would be to keep them in the yard. Right? Because we don't want them wandering off. At some level, a wall is about restriction, right? It's about, it's about keeping things on the inside. There probably are times we don't like that. But it is somewhat true. Now this one, plenty of you picked up right away. And I think this is the most obvious one that jumps out. But walls also provide protection, right? Like the restriction is keeping inside what's supposed to be inside from going out. But the protection is keeping what's supposed to be outside from coming in. And it's equally valid, right? Walls do that. You build walls. Every ancient city built a wall. Cities today don't do that so much. But every ancient city built a wall. Because every ancient city was under the the constant threat of some... A neighboring, warring group of people that might come and try to break it down and steal the plunder or do whatever. So they built a wall to protect themselves. I submit to you, walls are good for protection. We ought to have protection. Ought we not to? It would be mighty foolish of us, listen church, it would be mighty foolish of us to think I can inhabit the plain wide open space where anything and everything can come through and consider myself well protected. I also want to get to this, like a wall has maybe keeps people inside and maybe keeps bad things on the outside. But you remember he followed it up by saying that the gates are burned and walls have gates. So walls can't just be about keeping what's inside, inside and keeping what's outside, outside, right? They have gates and the gates are for what? What are the gates for? It's for moving in and out, Right. Meaning there's time. I mean, if it would be just this, if it would be just this, then you would just build a wall with no gate in it and you'd be inside of it all the time and keep the bad out and keep the good in, right? We all know that doesn't work, right? You're thinking practically why this doesn't work, but you understand what I'm trying to say. There's gates there. There's there's moving in and out. And I suggest to you that while these are both true on, on many levels, there's a greater purpose for a wall that I think... Uh, we, ha- we, have to, we have to wrestle with or acknowledge. And it's this word here. The best way I could th- think of coming up with is identity. Walls and gates, but they provide identity. Now, someone used the word uh, separation or, or, or distinction, and I, that, that's kind of where I was headed with that. Because it, when, when you have a city, let's, let's, let's deal with the physical first, what he's talking about here. Uh, when you have a city, the wall that goes around that city and the gates that allow people in and out, they're what define where the city starts and stops, right? Like if I'm the mayor of that city, my mayoral rule starts inside that wall and anything inside there. But if once I move outside the wall, I have no more jurisdiction, correct? So the, so the wall provides identity. It provides distinction. It provides separation. It provides uh, a, a, a demarcation that says in here is this, out there is not this, right? So take that same thought and say, if you're going to speak about these things spiritually, which you know we're going to have to, because we're not going to study Nehemiah and just simply talk about the historical things that happened, although we will talk about those things. We're going to say, spiritually speaking, walls and gates must provide the same kinds of things. Yes, restriction. Yes, protection. But ultimately, identity. Ultimately, a distinction. This is part of this. Clearly defined, not this. Think of, uh, we're going to probably get to this uh, verse a little bit next week, so I'm going to just paraphrase now, but think of, of the words of the New Testament that talk about being in the world but not of the world. There's a distinction made. There's got to be some kind of wall, some kind of separation. And therefore, if the wall is broken down and the gates are burned by fire, that's what brings us into great trouble and shame, for there's no more distinction. There's no more separation. There's no more identity that, that distinguishes this from this. Now, think of what I said. Think of the levels of application and run down that list. Nationally, you could, you could make those distinctions. Uh, anyway, church-wise, this has huge implications. If there's nothing distinct about the church identifying it as the church of Jesus Christ, it is in trouble and shame. And if there's nothing that identifies and makes a family distinct as a godly family with Jesus as the head, then it is in great trouble and shame. The walls broken down brings it to that place. And as an individual, the same is true, is it not? If my wall is broken down, my gates are burned by fire, and I'm no longer distinct from the things around me, I carry no identity that says I belong to Jesus, you cannot tell, then there's great trouble and shame. In my life, these are the things that we must get to. I think this is so important. I told you we couldn't get to it this morning. I think this is so important that I'm gonna take a whole nother week. I'm gonna give you some instructions, by the way, but I'm gonna take a whole nother week to just bring this, that last answer that Hannah and I gave, into today and talk objectively, talk passionately talk realistically, talk vulnerably about the places that our walls are broken down and our gates destroyed by fire in our personal lives, in our families, in our churches. Maybe we'll do some national things, but probably not a whole lot of those things because they tend to inevitably take on a political flavor, which I'm not interested in. But let me do one more thing this morning because uh, I think it's very important. We're preaching out of the Old Testament, which means there's often a uh, it feels like, I don't think it should be like this, but it feels like there's a, there's a, there's a war that happens there that you say, well, you know, we're doing the Old Testament, which means we don't ever get to talk about Jesus. We don't ever get to talk about, you know, the New Testament. We don't take, and we're New Testament believers, so this is not good. So let me tell you where my mind went as I was studying this week. And I was so pleasantly surprised this morning. This tells you how bad of a Sunday school participant I am, but I was so pleasantly Surprised this morning when I walked into Sunday school and I realized that the text I'm about to read was actually our Sunday school lesson for this morning. And uh, I I thank the Lord for that because my mind went, as I was studying this week, this discussion of walls and gates and all those things. My mind went to John chapter 10 where Jesus uh, says some words to the church leaders, as it turns out. But to all of us, let me just read for you this morning. If you have your Bible, I hope you can flip to it because I'm going to read a pretty lengthy passage here. John chapter 10, I want to read the first 18 verses. These are Jesus' speaking, words speaking to us. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But, he, excuse me, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, there's all kinds of stuff we can teach from this passage that we're not going to this morning. There's all kinds of places. There's all kinds of instructions, and thankfully, we had a Sunday school class that really dug into a lot of that. Hopefully, you were there at Sunday school. But my mind went to this because we have this picture of Jesus. He's telling this story, and the story, of course, he's telling is not really what he's interested in, but he's trying to illustrate something else and he begins to talk about sheepfolds and you think about a sheepfold a sheepfold has walls right it provides protection it provides restriction but I would suggest you it also provides identity Jesus said these words I'm just going to pick two verses out to kind of highlight what what I was where I was going here he says truly those who do not enter by the sheep sheepfold by the door but they go in some other way they climb over the fence that man is a thief and a robber I submit to you in the context of our study of Nehemiah, it's a whole lot easier to climb over a fence that's broken down than a fence that's built up. Right? If the fence is broken down, it's a whole lot easier for someone who's a thief to walk in and seek to scatter the sheep or lead them astray. But then Jesus also says this. As he's trying to get them to understand the lesson, he says, I am the door. In other words, if you want to be in the sheepfold... I'm the door. you got to go through me. If you enter by me, you'll be saved. You'll go in, you'll go out, and you'll find pasture. And this, to me, begins to flesh out a lot more the discussion about identity. If we're going to talk about how we've lost our identity, how our walls might be broken down, our gates might be destroyed by fire, if we're going to talk about identity, at the root of that has to be if we do not have our identity in Jesus Christ, then we have big gaps in our wall. We have huge problems. Again, when God said, I have rolled away the shame and reproach of the people of Israel, it's when they used the sign of identity that they belong to God. That's what circumcision is, by the way. It's the sign that I belong to God. When we today, talking as New Testament believers, lose our identity in Jesus or lose the things that Jesus taught us, or say we will no longer walk in those ways, then we have lost that sign of identity. We've, we've lost it, and, and we have allowed our walls to be broken down. Here's the question I'd like to pose to you. I want to wrap this up because time has definitely moved on. I want to revisit the subject next week. I intend... Lord willing, he he can change things and things may come out differently than I'm expecting at this point. It happens pretty often, actually, when I'm preparing for messages. But I intend to share with you next week some of my thoughts on some of the places our walls are broken down and our gates are burned or destroyed by fire. I also intend to share some of my thoughts, my heart, if you will, for Places I think that we can, we, we can and should change things, particularly at, at a church level. I may share some things family and personal level too, but certainly as a church level, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching, I'm pastoring a church, and so that's going to be a primary focus for me. Share a bit of my heart as to some things that I think could shore up that wall. We're going to maybe pick up some other things as we go through, but at least we'll sort of bring that thing out to the open. What I'd like to have from you is participation in this process. I don't want you to be satisfied or happy waiting for me next week to tell you all the things that I think are wrong, if that's how it's going to come out, for the the church or for our families or for us as individuals. I'd like you to spend time this week asking the Lord to reveal to you where there's places are that walls are broken down. And if you're willing to do it, I'd love to have you do it personally, first of all, but certainly as families and certainly as a church. Again, National can sneak in there. I'm not opposed to that, but again, it's not my primary focus. Furthermore, I'd love to even have you text or email or call me or do something and let me know what you're thinking this week. Send me some of those things as you think through the week that here's a place, you know, that I think the wall is broken down. Our church, blah, 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 I don't know what, or the church the church in America, blah, 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 or the church, in, I don't know, whatever, it's, however it's going to come down. Send that to me. I'm not... I don't know what's going to happen with that. I don't know if we'll engage in dialogue, or I'll talk about it Sunday morning, or who knows, but I'd love to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to each of you through the week about this subject. I'm committed to coming back next week and talking about it publicly, so that's going uh, to put, uh, put some things out there, right? Right? I said this last week. I said we can't expect to change or improve things or to fix things if we're not willing to talk about the things that need fixing. I'm fully aware that this is probably going to step on my toes. And I hope you're fully aware that it could very well step on some of your toes too. I would exhort us to take the attitude that says, my toes really need stepping on. I'd far rather, this is a bit of a paraphrase uh, jerking over what Jesus said, but I'd far rather have some crushed toes and get into heaven than keep my toes safe and go to hell. Ask the Lord, spend some time with him, let him reveal to you. My endeavor to you is to be as biblically based as possible, so I'd encourage you to do the same thing. I'm not looking for us to go on rants and soapboxes about how we used to do this and we don't do this anymore and, unless it's from the Bible and we can say this is why, this is why we did this stuff and I, I, I'm perfectly open to that. I will agree with you in many of those things actually. Is that clear? I'm hoping to have some, inter- some interaction with you this week. Sometime next week you'll hear from me, but I'd love to have some interaction with you this week. Why don't we pray together this morning and uh, we'll be dismissed? Lord, there's a couple of things running through my head, and so I'm, I just want to. I love, I love, God, that I can come to you in prayer and just talk to you, share my heart with you. And know that you care and that you are able to to help me. There's a couple of things running through my head. It feels like there's a potential for these kind of discussions the things we're going to be doing. It feels like there's a potential for there to be great division that comes out of it because, because we get passionate about things that we see are not right or that we think should be done differently, and we get caught up. We say, well, you want to fix the wall? Let's fix this. And, and, and we get all worked up about it, and some people don't always see things the same way, and it feels like there's this potential, God, for, for division, and I pray in Jesus' name against that because that's not what you want. But what you do want, however, you're not against discussing things. You're not against getting pretty passionate about them because what you do want is you want the pure body of Christ, the pure bride of Christ to be drawn forth. So I pray in the name of Jesus against a division that comes from the enemy. I pray in the name of Jesus for the things that will strengthen us to help us to be found faithful to you. I pray for the Holy Spirit's powerful influence over us, our hearts, and our minds this coming week. The other thing I'm thinking, God, is it feels to me like there's, there's, a, there's a trepidation. There's a fear there in, in my own heart and probably in the rest of ours too. But, but where are we going to have to go? To, what we have to do to unveil these things that are ugly and sinful and bring trouble and shame to us? We don't like that. We like to pretend we have it all together and everything is going great. But, God, it's just not true. Give us the grace, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Give us the grace to be vulnerable and humble and willing and honest to let you shine the light in us, starting with us. Oh, God, help us remove the beams from our own eyes before we pick at specks of others. But help us, God, not to shy away from doing anything at all because we're scared of the pain that picking that beam is going to bring. Give us the grace. Give us the energy, the focus. Give us the determination. Give us the humility. Give us the comfort of your love to be willing to stare this fear in the face and say, I will not shy away from letting the Holy Spirit prove my life, my family's life, my church's life. And then, God, the final thing that was running through my head is that I also feel in the face of this fear that I have, in the face of this this wondering of the division it might cause, of the things this might unravel, I also, Father, have this sense that this, that we're on the cusp of you doing an incredible work in our hearts if we're willing to walk in this way. And, God, that's what I want. It's almost as if we are here today in 2020. We're surveying the landscape and we're looking at all the stuff around us and you're turning our hearts inward back to us and you're saying, this report that Hannah and I brought to Nehemiah could be said of you. There's great trouble and shame. The walls are broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. And we invite you as we begin or continue this discussion of what to do How to work our way through that. How to allow you to rebuild that wall. How to get rid of the things that shouldn't be on the inside. We ask. We look for. We expectantly wait, God, for you to do great things among us in our own hearts, in our families, and in our church. I suppose you might say, God, we would like revival to happen, we would like us to be renewed if we at all in any way believe that the return of your son, Jesus Christ, as the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords, if we at all believe that his return is near, we would like to be revived, that we are ready for that. That we are eagerly awaiting it and passionately doing your work while we wait. So Father, have your way with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand this morning? Just to make it extra, extra clear. I asked Father, for your Holy Spirit to consume the hearts and minds of these people here. Bring them back next week. But bring them back in a place where they've spent the week under the Lordship of your Holy Spirit in wrestling with this topic of walls and gates and trouble and shame. In allowing you to identify in us. What needs to be changed? What needs to be built up? What needs to be restored? What's bringing trouble and shame to us? And we thank you. We receive the Holy Spirit gladly. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you go in peace this morning?